Hi, I'm Ashley Nichols. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan. And this is the Growing Democracy Podcast, a space for citizens, experts, and advocates to create community together. Each week, we invite a guest to talk about civic engagement, governance, and how to grow our democracy. This episode is part of our series on the power of political and civic engagement. We're talking with local elected officials, public officials, and community activists to learn more about what civic and political engagement means to them and how they are involved in their communities. If you want to be involved in the podcast and get behind-the-scenes content about each episode, you can head over to patreon.com forward slash growingdemocracyoh. You sure can. And today... Uh, we are going to have some great uh, in front of the scenes. Is that the opposite of behind the scenes? In front of the <laughs> scenes, highlighted uh, 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 attention paid to someone who really, I mean, oh my gosh, the story she tells. This is a great episode. Uh, just working with nonprofit organizations, but, you know, also battling, uh, it, it, you know, folks that are in the nonprofit world, they're doing just some real. Ugh. not yeah. not political and civic engagement. <laughs> right. So often um, the nonprofit space is often kind of framed as a panacea of like solving social good. And that oftentimes is not set up to address social problems and kind of the calling and that it's established oftentimes around upholding oppressive systems rather than uh, dismantling those oppressive systems. So I think being able to have a conversation quite candidly about what that looks like, what that means and navigating those spaces is really powerful. Yeah. And spoiler alert, we finally uh, curse on the podcast. So my favorite <laughs> has arrived. Yes. I'm like, this is now the time. <laughs> so we think you'll enjoy and have a listen. Brianna Alexander Oppenheisen is founder and co-director of Women Revamped and the director of lead programs at Michigan Disability Rights Coalition. The core of her work focuses on institutionalizing racial equity and dismantling structural white supremacy through training, policy change, and targeted resource allocation. Her previous experience includes AmeriCorps service and navigating the foundation world. She has served as a commissioner on the Michigan Community Service Commission and co-chair of the Young Nonprofit Professionals Network, Grand Rapids, among other board positions over the course of her 15-plus year career in the nonprofit sector. Welcome. Thank you for having me. So obviously, Ashley just read your bio, uh, but for our listeners, I'm sure they would like to know a little bit more about you. So can you tell us more about yourself? Yeah, I was born and raised in Saginaw, Michigan, which is about two and a half hours north of Detroit for folks that aren't familiar with Michigan. I would say I grew up in a part of town that people would consider to be the less desirable parts of town, but um, I was raised by a firefighter and a nurse. My grandparents were folks who migrated north uh, from Mississippi. And so from that, a lot of deeply rooted connections to um, civil rights sort of 
activism, definitely influenced by a lot of the struggles that they had. I would say the most influential person that is definitely behind a lot of my career decisions is my grandmother, who was a, what people have come to know as the help, you know, in unfortunate ways through that film, but Nonetheless, she was a domestic worker who had experiences like folks she worked with setting her lunch on top of the dog house outside and, you know, all these sort of dehumanizing experiences that she survived. And ultimately, they were able to pursue the sort of life that they desired by moving north. And so, you know, the automotive industry sort of story is really what's kind of behind my family's movements. And so like my parents' decisions to lean into careers that were about service definitely influenced who I was connected to at a very young age. My nonprofit career started at 14. So I've been connected to the community foundation space for a very long time. And those were my beginnings. I, I like to say that I was raised by the sector, and that's why I'm so critical of it. It's because I've seen the good, the bad, and the really ugly. I'm curious, what does a 14-year-old say, hey, you know what, I want to get involved in the nonprofit sector. What, what motivated that? Oh, goodness. So I'm going to say the name Joe Madison because he was such an influential part of the Youth Advisory Council at Saginaw Community Foundation. So when I was a freshman in high school, uh, one of my teachers, (laughs) I came to her with an idea and I'm like, I really want to revitalize a playground in my old neighborhood. And I don't exactly know how to do it, but I feel like you're connected to some resources. So help me figure that out. And she's like, I know just who you need to talk to. And so she introduces me to Joe Madison, who was the advisor at the time of the Saginaw Community Foundation Youth Advisory Council. And he says, you have a really great idea. That said, we actually do some of what you want to do already through what we call Make a Difference Day. How about you come hang out with us, see what it's about. And then if you want to kind of join in, you can be a part of the work that we're doing here. And if, you know, if you're still just like, this isn't enough, then we can figure out how to get you the money you need to make this happen. And that's kind of how it all started is I was informally slash formally recruited to this youth body that was empowered to give away at the time what was around $50,000 a year. I, I mean, I, I think now maybe we might believe it a little bit more, but, but, but back then was willing to bring in a 14 year old and say, yeah, you lead, you lead this, you come in. If this is what you want to do, here's some here's the reins. <laughs> you know, so I think part of the reason that I have sort of undying optimism around the potential of the nonprofit sector is from those experiences. Um, because you would think that that was a really isolated experience because it's so oddly unique who trusts any 14-year-old to make decisions about that much money, right? <laughs> But then the older that I got and the more exposure that I had with other youth advisory councils, uh, when I was in high school, so, you know, the the years between 2004 and 2008, there were 86 youth advisory councils in the state of Michigan established by the Kellogg Foundation. 
And like the history behind that gets a little funny and complicated, but at the core of it is the youth advisory councils were a stipulation of the Kellogg Foundation. And what they said is for every $2 a community foundation raises to establish themselves, and this was in the 80s. So there weren't that many community foundations and the idea was still kind of gaining traction. They said every $2 you raise will give you $1 to establish a youth um, advisory council endowment up to a million. So not every community foundation raised $2 million to leverage the million, but these youth advisory councils were in many ways the reason a lot of these community foundations exist because they were able to leverage quite a bit of money. And, you know, it... (laughs) At the time, you know, Russ Mobby was the architect of that idea, and um, I had the opportunity to get to know him years and years before his death. And one of the things that I can say without a doubt was behind his vision is he he really believed young people could change the world. And so just knowing that one person had that much faith in young people that they'd never met, (laughs) young people that they would never meet, right? Um, I think says a lot about what happens when people think about investment differently, when they think about how transformative the experience of making decisions about the communities you live in can be and what you see as potential for your life and the life of other people. And also like the lesson that that sort of stewardship teaches young people about who they're responsible to and also how they're responsible to one another. I love that. We just, we did an episode with, so just so that you're aware, um, we just did an episode with our kids. And so they're 12, thir- no, 13, uh, 14, and 16. The one I got wrong is mine, by the way. Uh, <laughs> and so speaking to that, I, I think was kind of central to the way that they were talking about what, you know, being kids, but wanting to be engaged and wanting to, to make a difference in the world. I love, I love that. It really kind of resonates with me in a, in a very personal <laughs> way. Um, yeah. Well, and how important it is for space to be carved out for what is first and foremost a marginalized community. So children are extremely marginalized. They have no rights and we've gone out of our way to make sure they have zero rights. And so even just thinking about how we intentionally create spaces for them to exercise the power that they have, even as we've created so many systems and structures to either box in that power or erase it outright. You know, there's no wonder you have so many confused folks <laughs> who become adults in society who's just like, wait, can I curse on this podcast? Yeah, of course you can. Oh, for me. <laughs> great. There's no reason that you have so many adults who don't know what the fuck to do when they mm-hmm. turn 18 and they're being asked to make decisions about a democracy that they've been intentionally kept out of. They've yeah. been placed in schools that eliminated all sorts of uh, citizenship curriculums to ensure that they don't know how to engage. They've been prevented from making decisions about their own bodies, about their own lives. And then all of a the sudden they turn 18 and it's like, magically you have the tools. <laughs> and it's and we're going to judge you if you aren't participating, right? Absolutely. Like, you don't fully know all of the things Then how, how is that possible? Why yeah. wouldn't you vote? <laughs> yeah. Why would you 18 year old who has been kept 
from participating, not want to participate. <laughs> and been told that your participation isn't necessary and isn't important and isn't wanted. Absolutely. And that you're a liability. I think constantly about how our advocacy for ourselves as minors is always a liability. I think about youth and government and the moment um, <laughs> there was a bill in Michigan youth and government during one of their um, statewide convenings that was a gun ban. And some state legislators showed up, thought they were going to give us the rah-rah, congratulations for participating in this. And we're like, so let's talk about this bill that we wrote that's perfectly feasible for you to enact. Also, why the fuck haven't you done this yet? Because why do people need protruding pistol clips to hunt? <laughs> like, and, and like how offended they were at being questioned like, oh, you guys have a lot of fire. It's like, no, we recognize that like your negligence takes our lives. And, and we have this culture that's built around constantly undermining how people think of their engagement, their, honestly, how people think about their control over their own lives. Children are the first experiment in social control, where it's yeah. like, maybe if we train you not to push back, not to question, not to make waves or shift, you'll be the sort of compliant adult that we need you to be when we do unethical things. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and, and we do really also see that when they, uh, you know, quote unquote, step out of line. So like with the the kids from Parkland or Greta, oh, what is her name? Thunberg. Yes. Right. That, that suddenly their, their label is problematic and uh, that, that they of course couldn't know what they're talking about because they're under the age of 18 as though <laughs> turning 18 grants you magical thought abilities. But yeah, that, that puts them in fact in the line of fire. Yeah. So I want to pivot because <laughs> I feel like we could spend a lot of time on this conversation, but I want to talk about some of the work that you're doing now as well. So you're currently the director of lead programs at the Michigan Disability Rights Coalition. Can you tell us a little bit about this work? Yes. Yeah, so the Michigan Disability Rights Coalition is a statewide disability organization that is really focused on ending all forms of oppression because we recognize that all forms of oppression are people with disabilities because people with disabilities are people with all sorts of intersectional identities. And so the work that I'm in charge of at um, MDRC is the Leadership Engagement Advocacy Development Grant, which is a grant from the Michigan Developmental Disabilities Council, which is a, an agency within MDHHS, which is the Michigan Department of Health and Human Services. <laughs> and that work is focused on increasing access, engagement, and just generally creating space around education specific to disability in communities of color and historically marginalized communities. So, we do work um, focusing on folks that are Spanish speakers. We do work focused on disability around folks that are a part of the Muslim community. If it's a marginalized community, we're probably thinking about how we bring disability uh, conversations to them in the state of Michigan. So pre-pandemic, a lot of that work took shape in cohorts that were happening locally because we recognize that part of building an infrastructure in marginalized communities around disability advocacy is having relationships with people that can identify with 
navigating those needs. And so pre-pandemic, those were happening in person locally with the intention that after our work was finished, their work would continue. And so post-pandemic, we're still doing the cohort work virtually. It's still localized in hopes of building some of those relationships. Um, But we've definitely expanded a lot of our conversation, particularly around the realities of the pandemic. One thing that we couldn't ignore was the disparity in death in our state, particularly at the beginning of the pandemic where many of the COVID deaths were Black people in Detroit. And the intersection of disability is undeniable. Um, when you get into people with disabilities and COVID, the the mortality rate uh, quadruples. So when you think of like why it's so important for people to have information and access to resources, well, a pandemic tells that story. When people don't have the ability to access the care that they need in an accessible way because maybe they can't drive. And so now they're relying on public transportation that's dangerous to their lives, quite literally. It's all very complicated, and it's even more complicated when you are a part of communities that a lot of the disability organizations in the state don't directly serve. So now, along with your position as the director of the LEAD program, you're also the founder and co-director of Women Revamped. Can you tell us a bit about that organization and what they're about? Yeah, so Women Revamped is, it's, it's my heart project. I started it when I was an AmeriCorps member, actually. <laughs> so back in 20, 2012, 2013. And it was... It was in many ways my way of dealing with the violence I endured as a college student in a relationship and (laughs) the dynamics of navigating support and navigating trauma. Women Revamp was kind of my response to that. And it started off as a storytelling space where women could talk about their stories. And the story could be any story. So my story was one of being the person no one expected to be a victim of domestic abuse. Um, but then other stories were, you know, what does it look like to be a woman and not want children? What does it look like to, you know, all of the kind of taboo conversations that we're told we shouldn't have because it's inappropriate. But maybe it's really important to read what someone else has to say, because it makes you feel a little bit more seen as a woman, because you're like, oh, I'm not the only person that doesn't enjoy children, (laughs) like personally. (laughs) Um, And that's okay. It opened the door to having a lot of those really necessary conversations around how we survive this place that's built to harm us. And by this place, I mean Earth at that point. <laughs> like, like Earth has functionally been positioned to harm women um, unilaterally. Not the Earth as in the environment, but the Earth as in like the institutions that have placed themselves upon it. And so it started off as a storytelling space. And then Donald Trump got elected. <laughs> and we kind of sat back and we were like, what does it even mean to tell the stories of women in this context? And then I got pregnant, and then I was like, okay, we need to take a break. <laughs> so we we went on a bit of a hiatus, <laughs> and then we were like, okay, let's, let's really think about what work needs to happen. And last year was the year that we slated the, the restart. It was an unfortunate year to pick in hindsight, but, you know, 
I could see into the future, I would have made a lot of different decisions. <laughs> Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? But we reestablished ourselves, and actually, we haven't even officially um, relaunched yet. We will be relaunching this year, but we decided to shift our focus on um, resourcing women of color and gender nonconforming folks who are often not the focal point of funding. And so for me, it was looking at my beginnings in the foundation world, acknowledging that I have a passion for making sure money is placed in the, in the areas that it really needs to be invested. And we also recognize that there is, there are so many ways that the philanthropic sector fails women of color in resourcing their movements, resourcing their ideas. Certainly, I think across the board, that's still true about women in general, but I think there are less opportunities that are really focused on women of color. So we decided to realign our work around funding women of color and doing it in a non-traditional way. So we won't be establishing an endowment because endowments are a part of this white supremacist system that we'll talk more about, right? We've really been very intentional about making sure that we consider how we work against these systems and structures that created the disparities in the first place and not work to replicate what are really harmful structures. I don't want to invest in a market that I know to be uh, fundamental to the exploitation of people. So then establishing a foundation that then pulls into that market to leverage more capital, even if that capital goes to people that are doing important work, That capital is only possible because it's being taken off the backs of someone who can't push against it. So, you know, being ethical is hard. Being ethical is kind of weird when you start talking about the foundation and nonprofit space in general. But that's where we landed is we're like, we're going to do this work differently. And my co-director, Kalina Murphy, she is really into women's focused advocacy work. And so um, it felt natural to build this new vision with her at the center as well. And to also build a vision that was not steeped in our, (laughs) steeped in our exhaustion. And so the co-directorship was also us being realistic about how much work it is to run something and how unrealistic it is to have these institutional structures that places the responsibility solely on one person and, and not envision what a cooperative situation would look like. So we've made a lot of changes and um, we're rebranding to respond to that. When when revamped was established, we weren't thinking about folks that were non-binary, Right. And even still, we are on that imperfect path of figuring out how do we explain what we're trying to do? Because we're very intentionally not trying to fund men, right? Like men are actually a part of the systemic work that we're trying to work against. Um, Not saying we're trying to like take men down, right? But rather saying we know that men often have more access to the resources that women don't. Um, and that's especially true for women of color. And so we've intentionally focused our efforts and our um, resource building around really putting money 
and support in the hands of women of color. Now I'm curious because I mean you've mentioned intersectionality and and you and you just mentioned it a, a few minutes ago too. There is this long history in feminist movements where truly it's catering to the needs and problems of white women. And I'm just curious, do you anticipate or have you had any pushback? I, I'm just wondering are, are there is it the case that when you're when there are organizations that are interested in investing in woman focused, right? Broadly defined uh, groups that when you start to kind of bring up the issue of the structural racism that has existed within and thrived within uh, the feminist movement community, that they get a little (laughs) pushbacky about that. (laughs) Touchy. Oh, where, where do we even start? Right. (laughs) (laughs) You know, if I could count on two hands, Actually, I'll use a better analogy. If I had a dollar for every time someone said my feminism was racist, (laughs) I would be so rich and subsequently use that money against them. You know, I think I think your question in a lot of ways points to this conflict that I've sort of informally committed to pushing against, which is this idea that anytime we fight against white supremacy, that we're inherently harming white people. When in reality, I think white women understanding how they leverage white supremacy to harm other people, while also needing them to understand how white supremacy fundamentally seeks to harm them, is is that coalition building work that's necessary. Now, some days... I'm not out here to educate white women. Uh, I mean, some days I'm just like, you could, you could leverage the power of the internet that we didn't have when we were children. (laughs) Like you can do the research and it gives you the answer. Um, But then other days I do find that it's important to make those connections for people. Like I don't think white people are inherently bad. But I do think white people have a history of doing bad things in the name of supremacy, particularly in the United States. And I think that we have to be more comfortable with holding complexity constantly. We can have ancestors that are really terrible people and also have loved them. It's possible for both, both of those things to be true. And I think sometimes we aren't having enough of those conversations. I regularly get shit about my husband being white and I'm like, okay, does that make me less qualified to do the work that I'm doing? And for some people, the answer is yes. But the only reason the answer for them is yes is because they haven't envisioned a reality where it's possible to have a partner who doesn't dehumanize me because I'm a woman or dehumanize me because I'm black. And it's possible for him to be an ally while also dealing with his own privilege because of his white maleness. <laughs> like, yeah. Those things are, they can be true. And also I can do the work that I'm doing because it's fundamentally tied to my own survival. Mm-hmm. I think it's hard for us to grapple with those things. But I also know that, you know, I use the example of Joe Madison being the person that really helped start my career in philanthropy in the nonprofit sector more generally. Joe Madison is a straight white man 
Maybe no one would assume that because people often make assumptions about my beginnings because of how I found my way to this work. But I found my way to the conversations around white supremacy because of the good relationships I had with white people, because of the things that I witnessed, the things that I learned from the experiences of my family. They're all related to how I found my way to this work. And so to know that it was possible for me to have a caring and loving relationship with a man who had no knowledge of me, no history with me. He was not family, but certainly became a fundamental part of my work. I mean, I remember being at Grand Valley and calling him with my friend Corey because we were just like, what the fuck is this nonprofit administration program? Like, why are we here? What is the point? They're teaching us all types of wild shit, and I'm not even certain that they know what they're talking about. And, like, he mailed us some books. <laughs> and he's like, I want you to read this. <laughs> and then he's like, I want you to read this, and then let's reconnect. And he always found really caring ways to be present and not diminish the experiences that we were having. And I think because that is possible, because I've experienced that, that's the reason I, one, fundamentally believe white people can always do better than they're doing. Um, but that's, two part of the work that we need to happen to save the earth. Right? <laughs> we actually need people to give a fuck about other people, regardless of who they are, what they look like, how they're situated, because our survival is connected. Whether we like it or not, <laughs> I would prefer that my survival was not connected to Donald Trump. I would deeply prefer that. So this actually, I think it really relates to a, a recent piece you wrote. Well, also, I, in the back of my head, I was like, oh my gosh, was I that volunteer management <laughs> nonprofit studies faculty member at Grand Valley? But that's an aside. We, You don't have to out me. It, it wasn't. It wasn't. <laughs> I... I Back then, I also had no issue voicing my disdain for people. So oh. <laughs> the person it was knew that it was them. And, you know, I'll just tell the, the side story. So I was in a leadership dynamics class and we were assigned a book. Well, each there were different groups and each group was assigned a different book. The book that I was assigned was written by Jennifer Granholm's husband, Dan Mulhern. We were supposed to write a paper on this. I was on the Michigan Community Service Commission with Dan Mulhern. So I send him a message and I'm like, hey, can I like interview you for this report that I'm writing? Thinking this is an easy A. Like you don't even know that I know this person and I'm about to like blow your mind with how this book you randomly gave me. I actually know the person. And I, don't get me wrong. I didn't like the professor either. She was a really shitty personality. And so, wrote the report, had his quote in there. She gave me a C and said, you're lucky that I don't fail you for lying about this quote that you got from this person that you definitely don't know. Oh, my God. And when I tell you, like, man, man. One, I was already tired of Grand Valley because I'm just like, don't get me started on that racist-ass institution. But <laughs> I was like, what you're not going to do I'm is call me a liar. Head, dude, like, the listeners can't see my 
Minotic. And like, I go to the dean of the college, Dean Grant at the time. And I'm like, Dean Grant, you know that I know him. Get her together. Also change my grade. I deserve an A because it's a good report. And I know I'm a good writer. (laughs) I'm like, so I know that the C that she gave me, one, is spiteful. And two, it's stupid. It doesn't even align with the work. And ultimately, like, the grade was never changed. I don't know that she ever taught the leadership dynamics class again. So I guess maybe that's a win in the eyes of Grand Valley. But it was definitely all the drama. And that was when I was like, fuck academia. (laughs) Because I'm just like, you honor these old mediocre ass people teaching these stupid fucking classes. They don't know anything. I'm just like, why are you teaching leadership dynamics anyway? You don't even know how to lead. (laughs) So (laughs) you can't even lead your classroom. (laughs) You talking about leading the world? Okay. (laughs) Oof. Oof. You can like edit that in or out. I don't really care. <laughs> I, I don't think it's it's a secret that I have all sorts of criticisms about. I, I shouldn't say that. So I had some teachers that I did enjoy at Grand Valley. So the whole department is not trash. It's just most of it. I also don't know who's there anymore. So I know that like, Greg Klein is still there and he's still my favorite professor. (laughs) Like he's just a great educator. And um, another example of how we could all aspire to not have trash, but academia makes the moves it makes as I'm sure you all could lament about. (laughs) Often often good educators are not rewarded. So we'll just leave it there. (laughs) All right. So my question, I do not think that that is far off from what we're talking about, but it is about this recent article you wrote for Candor Media. uh, It was titled Nonprofits, White Supremacy and the Violence Within. And, you know, you've talked a little bit about how you came to the nonprofit space. Can you talk a little bit about kind of your motivations to write this piece and kind of like why it's important to have these conversations around nonprofits and white supremacy? Yeah. So the reason I wrote the piece is I am in community with one of the folks that was targeted by Kids Food Basket, one of the Black organizers. For the work that I do at MDRC, but also in general, um, it's the person that I'm connected to. And when the story of what Kids Food Basket had done initially circulated. I witnessed a lot of explaining and diminishing a lot of folks trying to justify the actions of this nonprofit that they fundamentally had no insight into. I knew that just one from actually knowing that particular nonprofit well. I'm like, I'm not a stranger to Kids Food Basket helped write some of their diversity and inclusion statements back in the day. So it was fascinating to watch how quickly so many white people assumed the best and also how quickly so many men of color defended kids food basket as well. And at that point I was like, okay, well clearly folks are not going to say what needs to be said. So let's talk about this. And so I wrote the piece because I thought, I thought about a few things. One, I'm pretty impervious to the damage Grand Rapids society can do. Like someone in Grand Rapids being pissed at me will not mean that I lose my job. 
it might mean that we lose some funding. That's fine with me. Funding we didn't need. But there's also a privilege attached to that because I know my funders expect me to do this work. The organization I work at expects me to do this work. I also didn't do it as a part of the organization. So I wrote the piece not on staff time, not as a person who's a part of uh, Michigan Disability Rights Coalition. I wrote it as Brian Alexander Oppenheisen, the organizer who's connected to other organizers, who's in relationship and community with people that are about doing the sort of transformative work that saves lives. So I wrote it because I was pissed, (laughs) to be quite honest. I was pissed that Kids Food Basket would do such a thing. I was pissed that uh, someone, you know, at one point in time, I was in community with the executive director of Kids Food Basket. And so I was pissed that someone that at one point in time I was in community with would make such a decisively violent decision against a Black person. Just for our listeners, can I interrupt real quick and just for like a quick snapshot of what the kids' food basket did? Yeah. We can put a link to it to the more details so they can read about it, but just a quick summary. So kids' food basket was, oh gosh, honestly, I think you should link to their own self-description, but the, the summary that I could give is kids' food basket is a nonprofit in the Grand Rapids area. They were named as a part of a informal community survey put together by grassroots activists. It was called the Worst of GR Awards. And they were named as having a savior complex. They didn't win the award. (laughs) (laughs) They were just finalists for it. So you can read into that how you will. The organization that won the award didn't even do what they did. So that kind of tells you that Kids Food Basket probably should have won, but they win this. They were finalists for this award that the community had identified them as having a savior complex, and then thoughts that were collected from the survey that circulated the community were listed, so people understood why the community had named them to that list. A few weeks later, their attorneys from. I don't remember the law office off the top of my head, but Grand Rapids-based firm sent a cease and desist letter to Black activists who were a part of a larger coalition, a larger multiracial coalition that included not Black people (laughs) and threatened legal action against them if they did not remove all defamatory statements. So... The organizers shared that cease and desist letter. Kids Food Basket quickly tried to defend themselves and sort of said, well, we didn't really plan on suing them anyway. I personally don't buy any institution that sends some lawyers and says, well, we weren't planning on doing anything anyway. I'm like, well, that's kind of not the point. After you you deploy your lawyers... What also really bothered me about the whole situation is one of the organizers they targeted was an organizer that they worked with to leverage grant funding. So to me, it was a case study example of how white supremacy plays out in our sector, where we will utilize the suffering, the skills, the expertise of 
communities of color to leverage funding from other places and then turn around and kind of beat them when we don't like how they're coming at us. And that didn't sit right with my soul. And it also um, was only made worse by the fact that in their defamation letter, I'm sorry, their cease and desist letter, that they named some of their commitments to racial equity in it. And at that point, as a racial equity practitioner, I was like, what you're not going to do is use the language of racial justice, the the language of racial equity to perpetrate violence against people. Uh, You know, I I would have been offended if it was used to perpetrate violence against anyone. But to use that language to actively engage in harm against a person of color that you knew, that you worked with after January 6th? Oh my goodness. I, I was just fumes. My husband probably was looking at me like I was just a ball of fire walking around our house because it's so offensive to every sense. It's so, it's so despicable that the only thing that offends me more than the actions that they took in that letter are the actions that they took after people started calling them out, posting videos of Black women having conversations about racial equity apologizing but not really apologizing and still justifying their actions, connecting with people behind the scenes to try to make it go away. Those are the actions to me of an organization that has no intention of being accountable. But it's also to me connected to this larger issue of white supremacy culture in the nonprofit sector. Kids Food Basket didn't do something that other nonprofits haven't and won't do. They did something that's actually quite common. Not wise. Personally, if I was a donor and I found out a nonprofit was using my money to go chasing after people with lawyers, I probably wouldn't give my money to them. But they're not the first. There's a disability organization in Muskegon that did actually sue a disability activist in the Muskegon area for advocating for herself. Um, Her name is Eleanor Cantor. And they, they did take her to court for defamation, for simply organizing, because she did not believe that the way the nonprofit was doing its work truly advocated for people with disabilities. And she is herself a disabled white woman. So do we just start suing people that have opinions about the way that we do our work? Well, apparently, Yes. And that's the trend that is being set. And there are all sorts of examples of nonprofits uh, threatening and utilizing legal action across the country. And so I think, you know, I commented on the kids' food basket thing because of the personal relationships, because that's, to me, when you're in community with someone that's being attacked, you show up for them. So even though I don't live there, I'm going to say something, even though I don't necessarily have influence in you know, some people might find this statement debatable, but I don't live in Grand Rapids. And the work that I do is really about resourcing people that are in communities around the state, not necessarily being a broker in those communities personally. So I don't necessarily always view my voice as being representative of the community because I'm not a part of it. But I do think that when we're witnesses to violence, we have an obligation to say something. I also think, you know, part of the reason that I didn't outright name Kids Food Basket in the title of the article is because 
what they did is really about the sector and what the sector is allowed for and the sort of culture that we've talked around for a long time. We never really talk about white supremacy in the nonprofit space. So even when we do racial equity work in the nonprofit space, it's about racial equity, Mm -hmm. but it's never about white supremacy. It's one of those contradictions that you just kind of have to sit with for a while because we've crafted so much language to avoid saying white supremacy that, I mean, I I could give you probably 20 pages worth of language related to racial equity that doesn't say white or supremacy in it at all by design, because I fundamentally think that we have avoided having the conversation that we needed to have for a very long time, which is the nonprofit sector exists because of white supremacy. Mm-hmm. It exists because we destroy things and then we want to have the power and how they're fixed. But we don't want everyone to have the power. We want to decide what the fix is. And the fix isn't really a fix because to fix it all goes against the interests of those who have a desire to control and have power. It's really, I mean, look at foundations. Foundations are hubs for consolidating power. I, and I'm, I'm curious because, I mean, part of that uh, hoarding of power is hoarding of wealth, right? And I, so you've talked about your time in AmeriCorps and, and how you started to begin to understand Paul Kivel's comments that, right, quote, we've shifted our attention from the redistribution of wealth to the temporary provision of social services to keep people alive, end quote. And I'm curious, how did your time with AmeriCorps kind of bring this, bring you to this place of understanding? AmeriCorps was the best and the worst experience in a lot of ways. I loved my time as an AmeriCorps member. I was placed at the Grand Rapids Community Foundation working with young people who were a part of their college. I can't remember the name of it because it's been such a long time, but it was a college access really. It was called the YES program, um, and it was a college access program that was meant to connect with kids that are traditionally disconnected from college positive opportunities. And so it was the best and the worst experience, best experience in that working with those young people really cemented my desire to do the sort of work that ensures young people in particular are invested in and cared for in the ways that they should be because kids deserve to live lives where they can dream for as long as possible and not have to worry about survival because why do children have to worry about survival? So best experience in that way, best experience in that working at the community foundation was a great experience. I was coming out of a not so great foundation experience. (laughs) And so um, I think in a lot of ways I needed to witness the sort of leadership that I did um, Diana Seeker's a great leader and learning from her as both a, a woman who is in a leadership position who wields a lot of power and also just kind of witnessing how she navigates complexity was really educational. And, you know, she cares about her staff. I felt cared for. Um, I felt protected in some of the ways that I quite frankly needed protection at the time. But I was allowed to really navigate doing that work and navigate how to be present for those kids. And I would say that's a unique AmeriCorps experience. (laughs) Not going to say that's the full AmeriCorps experience, but it showed me that there was no amount 
of resources that the community foundation could invest that would solve the problem. Nonprofits are not positioned to be problem solvers. They're stopgaps. We can't fix institutional issues that are fundamentally the role of the government. And every time we try to, we create more problems. And so I think my AmeriCorps experience, you know, as an AmeriCorps member and then later as a program manager for the Habitat AmeriCorps program in Michigan, the experience of managing AmeriCorps members was part of kind of the sour part of it, where you see how AmeriCorps positions people to be in poverty and still deliver a service. When I was an AmeriCorps member, my dad would make a joke and he said, it's like the needy helping the needy. And I was like, well, that's kind of cold. <laughs> but he wasn't wrong. And I think when you are in the situation, you don't necessarily see it as clearly as when you're managing people who are then in the situation. And so when I managed AmeriCorps members where they weren't making enough to pay rent, they needed food assistance. That's actually one of the things that you are told to recommend when you're onboarding people. These are different services that you can apply for to supplement your stipend and often not providing folks with the context that like, you may not get food assistance because you're receiving a stipend and not a salary and, 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 and. And so your position to also watch people suffer to provide a service that they're told is important. And so it, it, AmeriCorps service just kind of puts, I think, in full view how our priorities in the sector are often skewed, uh, but also how we use the sector to prevent government from making the changes that it really needs to. A nonprofit has no business dealing with housing insecurity. The government has every bit of business developing housing to make sure nobody's homeless. Plain and simple. No one will ever convince me that government doesn't have a responsibility to keep people alive. And so if we can agree that people deserve to live, then we can also agree that it's both more efficient because the government literally has records of every single person alive, <laughs> right, under its jurisdiction. If they have all of this information Maybe they can deliver things more efficiently. And we have, ex we have examples of government being more efficient than other organizations that are not government in looking at Medicaid. There are all sorts of problems with Medicaid, but it is far more efficient than private insurance, period. Meal delivery facilitated by schools, far more efficient than kids' food basket, just to name drop since we're talking about them. I mean, like, <laughs> but the moment we start creating nonprofits that never actually seek to not exist, we literally become a bomb waiting to explode. Because I think, you know, one of the, the issues that was raised in the survey is like, they're not doing food justice work. They say that they're working to end a food apartheid. How? They don't do policy advocacy work, none that I've seen, but again, not unique to them. I would say most nonprofits don't actually do the sort of advocacy work to support them not existing anymore. And that's part of the problem. The intention of nonprofits were never to exist in perpetuity. Ideally, we want the problems we're solving to be solved. The fact that we have so many institutions where it's not clear who they're accountable to 
it's like to me those are the most dangerous nonprofits are the nonprofits where it's never clear who they're showing up for you know i think st- sticking sticking with the example that is before us i think it's really fascinating when a community goes at a nonprofit and says we don't like the way you're serving us and that nonprofit doesn't listen because then who is directing that nonprofit's work particularly when it's work that the needs of the community is what leverages the funding. How do you solve that? Well, you solve it by probably demolishing the organization. Because if it's shown you that it's not willing to work in a way that includes the communities it serves, then it shouldn't exist. But then that to me is the larger conversation around the sector. And that's, we literally need to re-envision the work of the sector because Right now, our sector literally exists to maintain and maintenance white supremacy. So my, I actually, the way that you were just talking, I think really sounds a lot like the language that's been used to talk about the nonprofit industrial complex. And so, so from that perspective, how can individuals avoid the nonprofit industrial complex, like actively participating in it and perpetuating these systems that aren't actually addressing, they might be addressing an individual's momentary need, but they're not addressing systemic problems. How do we get involved in this type of work? How do we address social and racial justice issues, recognizing the problems of the nonprofit industrial complex? That's it. That's like the same question restated like three different ways. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'll I'll answer and then you can tell me if you need me to clarify anything. So I think first, we all have to acknowledge and accept that we have learned and been socialized in a white supremacy-based society. If you're if you're American and you were raised in America, you were taught white supremacy whether you liked it or not. And you need to acknowledge that to even get to the conversation around how, how do you address um, racial equity, racial justice, the nonprofit industrial complex, you actually need to fundamentally understand that you are not able to avoid the influence of white supremacy. You were socialized in it. You learn things from it, (laughs) you know, whether you're white or non-white we all learn some very clear lessons about white supremacy from the beginning. So one of the examples that I often use, and you know, some people cringe when I give this example, is I remember one day asking my dad why my name was Brianna. I'm like, it's a really random name. I'm like, also, all of our siblings' names, with the exception of my brother, all of our names are quite random, with the exception of our middle names, which are actually tied to a human being in our family. (laughs) Why did you name us these names? And his response didn't even take him a minute to think, was when you apply for a job, they won't know if you're Black or white. Now, he wasn't wrong. That's regularly been my experience. People see my name They hear me over the phone, they meet me in person, and it's like, you might as well rip a record because, what? (laughs) Who? (laughs) I'm waiting for Brianna Alexander. Uh, Yes, that's me. Would you like to see my license? And the reality is there's so much built into it. So how I was taught to present myself, how I was taught to speak are all wrapped into ideas 
around white supremacy, how we should present ourselves, even our, like as women, how we conceive of ourselves and um, the rape culture that chases us, right? Where certain women that act and look a certain way deserve some type of treatment. And if you look and act a certain type of way, you deserve another type of treatment. That's all wrapped into ideas around white supremacy because ultimately white supremacy really isn't trying to include most of us, right? It's it's about power consolidation. And once you've eaten your target group, you're moving on to the next group to eat until you're all that's left. And it it's clear to me that most people who push back against the idea of white supremacy think that they're a part of the group that's going to benefit. And I'm like, hate to break it to you, but you're not. That said, the nonprofit industrial complex, like how do you address it? I think there's a lot of education work that has to happen. Most people come into the nonprofit sector having no idea what it's rooted in. Most people that work in the nonprofit sector cannot tell you the basis of the nonprofit sector. And that only serves to perpetuate the sort of violent culture that I think a lot of us in the sector complain about. I would say a lot of us who have worked in the sector a long time, you know, black, white, brown, whatever, most of us have seen some things we didn't like where we're like, this is counter to the work that we came here to do. And I think that an admission that nonprofit organizations were created to sustain a white supremacist system is an important place to start. Do I think we have the tools that we need to facilitate that shift? No, not really. We have a lot of language. We have a lot of trainings that aren't really about mobilizing against that thing that we do know that we need to probably change for it to stop being counterproductive. But we don't have a process in a situation where so many of us are trained to be process-oriented thinkers that like having a process to literally dismantle the white supremacy in your organization is fundamental. But the other piece of it too is that we've seen examples of organizations trying to do this work within their institution. That's not sustainable either if it's not sector-wide work because you can change all of the policies and practices of your institution, but if it's existing in a network of institutions who are all still very invested in white supremacy, all it takes is a new executive to turn it right back around. And I think that that's been, to me, the most glaring failure is, one, we've never actually done work to dismantle white supremacy in the sector um, within our institutions. And then two, we often discount the importance of building structures to hold ourselves accountable. And that also means kind of restructuring the whole mindset of the sector, which is like, we are fundamentally accountable to the communities we're in. And building a process for being accountable to communities is actually work that we need to do that hasn't happened. So for folks that are either inside of this nonprofit sector or even outside of it, given that, I mean, so much of the failures are, are there, they seem to be rooted in white, white supremacy, right? So how, what does political and civic engagement look like given that kind of uh, uh, 
barrier or <laughs> right? How, how do you practice political and civic engagement when that's what you're up against? I think you just work towards doing what's right as best as you can. I th- I th- yeah, I could give you a really complicated and theory infused example, but the truth is, <laughs> like, like I have lots of books where I'm like, yes, yes. If you look at what Adrian Marie Brown says, then, but the truth is, I think it's an imperfect path, but walking the path is actually the work. Mm-hmm. I think that people are going to constantly slip when it comes to that journey away from white supremacy. I think we should expect that. I would be more concerned if the mistakes didn't happen. I I constantly have to think about, okay, am I being ableist? Because it's unlearning work. We've already learned how to perfect it. We have to learn how not to do it. And that's constantly like checking in with yourself. It's checking in with other people. Because you don't, you don't see what you aren't experiencing. And if you're not in community with people that can see things that you can't, well, then, of course, you're going to make the same mistakes over and over again. And, you know, to continue on the, I'll, I'll keep using Kids Food Basket as an example, because it's like, if, if we're already targeting that particular organization's misdeed, we might as well stick with it. <laughs> when I look at an institution like Kids Food Basket, even if I remove my own personal connection to the disappointment of the decisions that were made, I think to myself, this is an example of how disconnected our sector is, that nobody is in community with this organization to help them make better decisions, that no one in the community who is connected to the people who are experiencing the pain and the suffering that this organization has caused was behind the scenes in the first place to help them address it. These aren't these aren't new criticisms. They're very old. But the fact that an organization that old, a $10 million nonprofit at that, is positioned in such a way that not only is it impervious to criticism, it's void of accountability. That's the space where you can't dismantle anything because no one is willing to do the work. I can have a million and a half conversations about racial equity, racial justice. Congratulations. You know the term, but do you know the work? (laughs) Like, yeah, you know the theory, you know the process. Ooh, you understand what intersectionality means and who, who originated the term. But do you really understand the work that's involved in operating from an intersectional framework? Most people don't. But also most people, you know, I I was in a meeting last week and someone made a comment that really stuck with me. And they said, we're so addicted to perfection that in avoiding imperfection, we do nothing at all. And to me, that is what's standing in the way of the sector dismantling itself in the ways that makes it a better sector is that, well, we've never seen it happen We don't actually know what it would look like. So rather than taking a risk and messing up, but finding a better place, we just don't want to do it at all because it's like, oh, oh God, this is going to look really shitty. And I'm like, but yes, let's look shitty in a transparent way. (laughs) Let's let's fuck up and do it with a smile. (laughs) Also, let's create a space where we can look at our imperfections 
and appreciate that we're trying not to do that shit again. Mm-hmm. Like that is the work that I think needs to happen to get away from that, that complex that we all find ourselves kind of stuck in. But I also think that's what civic engagement looks like moving forward. If civic engagement is no system is perfect, then actually every system is a problem. And so the advocacy against it is then fundamentally naming how those systems are not working and why, and then naming ways that they could work better or naming why they shouldn't exist at all. Like, I think it's safe to say that the foster care system just needs to go away entirely and we can just go ahead and start from scratch and it would still probably be better than what it is. We all know this. No one is debating that. No one is out here saying the foster care system is actually doing pretty well. I I have yet to hear that. (laughs) But what has changed? That has been said for at least my entire lifetime. So that's like a little over 30 years. (laughs) People have said the foster care system is shitty and look at how we produce criminals. And I'm like, okay, if you feel this way about it, what are we doing differently? And the answer is nothing because, well, we don't know a better way. And, oh my gosh, what if this is worse? And it's like, well, it can't get any worse than what you're saying. Creating space to radically re-envision what the world could be is a place where I keep trying to put myself. <laughs> like in, in my activism is like, because I always think of myself as a, as critical, right? Like I like to pull back the taken for granted and understand power, but that also for me is paired with then radically re-envisioning what it could be like thinking toward thinking toward like that we don't have to be stuck. And reestablishing our relationship with radical, right? I think so many people are turned off by the idea of anything radical. It's like, well, you're avoiding a relationship that might be very good for you. (laughs) It's like you have this boyfriend that's really abusive and you're like, well, it's the abuse that I know. And this is the salvation that I'm not so certain of. And it's like, how about you step out on some faith and believe that you deserve better than this. And I think that that's like, if you ask me the one thing that I would say to everyone when they're like, I don't know that I should even be talking about white supremacy as I'm like, I think we can agree. We all deserve better than this. Yeah. Yeah. I personally want to live in a society where seeing someone homeless isn't normal. I would like to live in a society where I don't actually have to think about the existence of kids food baskets because it's unconscionable that children are starving. Now I'm not saying that kids food basket feeds starving children. So let me just put that out there. (laughs) I don't know the demographic that they serve specifically, but we know that there are kids that are malnourished. We know that there are families with all sorts of insecurities around housing, around food. Um, I grew up in a food, a food insecure area where the nearest grocery store, Meyer for that matter, was 25 minutes away from us on the highway. So I'm going to say, We could do better than that. It it should be easier to get an apple. I shouldn't live close. I shouldn't live in walking distance of a liquor store and have to drive just to get to an apple. Yeah. What you're saying is we couldn't do worse. (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. But we, we could literally, literally sleep and come up with better solutions. We could just wake up and go to a, a dry erase board and envision something that's far better than this and subsequently not have an issue finding money for it because we know that money is not an object when we want to do it. We, if we can constantly find money for bombs, I am certain we can find money for housing and food. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on with us. This is fantastic. Yeah. I, I don't know if I can speak too early on the work that we're starting, but at MDRC, we are going to be soon announcing some of the work that we're going to focus on around investing in some of that re-envisioning of the sector. Because we've been doing work to kind of uh, dismantle the white supremacy within our own organization. And that's hard work to do when you're not in community with other people doing it. So there is work happening, <laughs> but it took us a long time to get here. And I think the nice thing, I guess, about nonprofits making mistakes is it creates an opportunity for us to evaluate ourselves and also be more critical. All of our institutions have made some really fundamental mistakes in the way that they've done their work. And so, you know, as best said by most crisis managers, never let a good crisis go to waste. <laughs> well, then we'll have to have you back on so we can uh, hear about the lessons learned, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there will be many. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for listening to the Growing Democracy podcast. I'm Casey Boyd-Swan, and my co-host, as always, is Ashley Nichols. Our podcast is produced by David Yursa and edited by Jeremy Demery at Golden Ox Studio right here in Cleveland, Ohio. Our podcast is supported by the American Political Science Association and our Patreon patrons. If you like our show and want to know more, check out our website, growingdemocracyoh.org. If you want to support the show, as well as get access to behind-the-scenes content, live chat, swag, featuring designs by Donuts and Coffee, head over to patreon.com forward slash growingdemocracyoh. Join us next time when we continue this conversation about political and civic engagement.